Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room History. I'm your host, Eric Andreessen, and today is episode three, and our last episode on our very first series, The Han. If you want to jump right in right now and you haven't heard episodes one and two, I would recommend against it, as a lot of this stuff, you know, the people, the ideas, the places, these are things you might not know exactly what I'm talking about, so I recommend going back and listening to episodes one and two first, just for the context of it. But if you don't want to and you want to pick up right here at the very end, I can't stop you. Without further ado, episode three of The Han. Think about things that are expensive. Now, not just on what you can buy as a person. Yes, there are tons of material things you can buy that are expensive. A house, a car, a new shirt. But think about things that are expensive on a governmental scale. Funding new roads, infrastructure projects. There's a bunch of things you can think of. Healthcare. There's a bunch of things that will probably come into your head. But in my head, nothing seems to be more expensive than one thing. And that thing is wars. Wars are expensive. Now, I want to note, before I dive in more into this, that the Han Xiongnu War, I didn't realize this in episode two, but this is one of the very first wars in recorded human history of this magnitude. This is a war that had multiple fronts, multiple theaters, and had campaigns that lasted over the course of roughly a decade all over Eastern and Northeastern Asia. It's expensive. Now think about it very bluntly, the war itself could be expensive on just the financial side. Well, you're probably going to say, Eric, well, that's what expensive means, it's expensive financially, you pay a lot of money. And yes, imagine having to arm, feed, transport all these troops for roughly a decade. You have, you know, interchangeably roughly 100,000 men every year going in, going out, needing to be fed, their horses fed, they need armor, they need weapons, people to sharpen their weapons, people to transport their weapons, people to make the food. I can go on for roughly 25 minutes reading different things that it took to keep a couple of soldiers in the field, let alone an entire army for roughly a decade. But a war is also expensive on a much more somber note. It's expensive in lives. And lives are hard to replace. A 10-year war, and a bloody one that it was, now, it's a 10-year war. The Han begins to lose people. But beyond just people, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was that the Han dynasty, at the end of this war, had lost roughly 80% of its horses. Remember, the thing that made the Han dynasty so unique, the thing that I hammered home in the very first episode, kept hammering home in the second episode, is that of their military, 36% of it was cavalry. This is a very high number for Chinese militaries. I mentioned that the, the Qing had a small, roughly 6%, and the next dynasty had roughly 3% of their military force comprised of cavalry. You have a war this bloody for this long, you begin to lose horses faster than you can replace them. So over 10 years of losing horses faster than you can replace them, you begin to have a problem. Now horses obviously were, were being killed in combat. That's the very first reason you can think of. They were lost on all these expeditions due to combat, but they were also lost to non-combative scenarios. Remember, when these horses are marching with Ho Chu Bing, probably carrying him a thousand miles through the desert, or they're carrying Wei Qing's forces 500 miles through a desert, when they're in the Hushi corridor, in the harsh terrain, this puts a strain on the horses. So while a lot of them are dying in combat, and as you would assume, they're, they're war horses, eventually uh, some are going to die in combat, a lot of them are killed just by transport. These are harsh journeys you know, through the Gobi Desert, and these are massive troop movements through such harsh terrain that it was going to put pressure on the horses. And the Xiongnu didn't make things easier on the Han horses. 
According to the Book of Han, the Xiongnu were able to start a species-specific plague by contaminating the water supply of the Han by dumping dead cattle into them. Horses have to drink, and according to the Book of Han, a lot of horses died from a plague. And that was accused of being started by the Xiongnu, and, and this is widely believed to be true. The Xiongnu were known to do this and actually bragged about doing it as such. But these economic pressures that the Han Dynasty now faced led to, well, what most governments do after a war. They need money, and the way governments get money is they introduce taxes. And after the Han Xiongnu War, well, the war pretty much ends after the battle that Wei Qing faces. Now, again, the Xiongnu aren't fully defeated. They raid seven years later, and there's a couple expeditions after that that we'll get into later. But for all intents and purposes, it's over, and the Han needs to start recouping its losses. And the Han Dynasty's central government begins to institute very heavy taxes onto its people. And this puts a very heavy burden on the peasants. Now, remember, the whole reason that Emperor Wu was not able to go to war right away was because his court was afraid of getting dragged into a costly war with no clear timetable that could potentially be ruinous, not just economically, but also militarily. Remember, this was the whole point of Mai, the ambush. Knock him out in one punch because we do not want to engage in a full-scale war in the desert with these long expeditions because one, we could lose. Two, we don't know how long this is going to last. And three, regardless of how long it lasts, it's going to be expensive. And while Emperor Wu was able to rid these regions of the Xiongnu, what ended up happening is that there really was an economic cost. It didn't cause a recession, it didn't cause the whole country to fall apart. But it led to new political situations that the Han had not yet faced, especially regarding their peacetime tax policy. But obviously the Xiongnu suffered a much more devastating fate. By the fact that their military alone were completely destroyed, they had been completely wiped out in several regions, but these extreme losses would not only just hurt their military, but it would be shown directly into their economy. Apart from direct losses of just the fact that they lost a lot of guys, I mean, they got thousands of troops captured, they lost thousands of nobles, they lost soldiers, they lost their lands, they lost their horses, their cattle. This began to cause economic issues with the Xiongnu. While they were nomadic, they relied on cattle, and they relied on the on the grazing lands that the Hushi Quarter and the Ordus Loop possessed. And when they lose these, their livestock, which feed them and are great for their trade, when they lose these to the Han military, according to the Book of Han, the war left a large portion of the remaining cab the cattle that were alive suffering miscarriages during the reproductive seasons. Furthermore, the loss of control from these fertile grasslands meant that the Xiongnu had to hold up in the northern Gobi Desert, and even in the parts of Siberia which means that by default, they would be struggling to survive. Siberia is not known to be a place that you want to go if you're looking for an easy time to survive. It's cold, it's inhospitable, and the Gobi Desert isn't much better. In fact, it might be worse. So the fact that the Xiongnu's main source of food, their main source of economic trade, because the lands were wiped out, and because, as we talked about in one of the battles that Wei Qing was in, in the Ordus Loop, they captured allegedly a million heads of cattle. That economic value from the Xiongnu is not just being destroyed, it's being transferred to the Han in a lot of instances. And as we know, though, there was a truce after the battle uh, that Wei Qing had won at the very end. Of course, as I mentioned in episode 2, this truce ends in 112 BC at Wu Yen, when the Xiongnu go in and they raid can't stop their natural instinct, can't stop their main way of, well, not their main way, but one of their key ways of getting money, establishing power, was raiding. 
And when they raid it again, of course, the peace falls apart. But they were not the strength of their past glory days. But they were not as strong as they were before this war started. And they would eventually, over the course of the next couple decades, they would break up into originally the northern and the southern Xiongnu, and eventually would break up into the individual tribes that they were before they were established. Now, even before the Han's expansion into Central Asia, they had a diplomat. His name was Zheng Qian, and he went on travels from about 139 to 125 BC. And this guy had established Chinese contacts with many of the surrounding civilizations. Think of him like a Chinese Marco Polo, a guy who goes out and reaches the fringes of the known world for that civilization. And Zhang ends up making contact with a myriad of different civilizations. He makes contact with the Daoyuan, which are the Fergana people. He makes contact with the Kangju, the Sogdiana people. And he makes contact with the Daxia, which are the Bactria, which originally were the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. But he also gathered information on some very big civilizations that you might know a little better than the Fergana people, which actually I don't know much about. He makes contact and actually gets a lot of information on the Shandu, which is the Indus River Valley of northern India. And as I was mentioning a couple times in the last couple episodes, he makes contact with Anxi, which we would know as the Parthian Empire. All of these countries that they connect with, they eventually receive these Han emissaries. They receive Han um, tribute, and they, these connections end up beginning the Silk Road trade network that we know today. And this trade network ends up extending from the Han Dynasty all the way to the Roman Empire. We had said that these two were sort of completely separated, might as well have been on different planets, the Han and the Roman Empire. They were on the same planet, doing very similar things, but they were on the different side of the world. Might as well have been on different planets. But now they're connected. And the Han are able to trade items through this long passageway through multiple different civilizations, but they're able to trade silk and other Chinese goods to Rome. And Roman goods are found in China. And we know that the Romans were sending goods such as glassware. So the Chinese are becoming incredibly cosmopolitan. They're not trading weapons. They're not trading food. They are trading fine goods with the Roman Empire now. And this would not have been possible without the clearing up of these western regions from Hua Chubing and Wei Qing. But the military conquest and the expansionistic mentality did not stop there for the Han. Now this seems like an inevitable part of most civilizations. You know, a lot are peaceful and are not sort of warring nations and not warring civilizations, but it seems like once they taste the blood of war, once a country gets a taste of that, you taste victory, you taste the fruits of expansion, it's almost like a drug you can't get off. Rome can be pretty small, but the moment it starts taking from its Italian neighbors and it starts beating them and putting them into the empire, and once you start seeing the Han do the same thing, you start putting in military victories, these lead directly to a fantastic economic boom. These lead to cultural booms. These lead to, you know, fine goods being traded with the other greatest civilization of the time. It changes your way of thinking. And it's very rare to see a civilization win a war and then just stop. Persia wins wars. You know what they do? They keep moving farther and farther away, capturing more and more things. You see this in Germany in the modern day. You capture some stuff. You know what you do? You keep trying to capture more stuff. Now, obviously, there's times where it didn't happen. But look, did these civilizations stop warring because they were facing now, you know, they beat a bunch of local tribes and now they're facing, you know, the Byzantium Empire. 
or they're going to, you know, you're, you're a Gallic tribe, you beat a couple other tribes, you start expanding, and then you're going to run up against uh, an enemy that is a million levels above you, and you know that it's just stupid to go against. But if you're the Han, or if you're the Romans, or you're the Parthians, you're pretty much the biggest guy on the block. You are the biggest guy in the prison yard. You can take whatever you want. And the Han do just that. So from roughly 115, a couple years after the end of Mo Bay, and the end of sort of the Wei Qing Huochu being grand Han Xiongnu War era, the Han forces begin to clean up what's left of the Xiongnu. And they fight them for control over some oasis cities in the Terran Basin. And the Han, again, are eventually obviously victorious in doing this. And they established the protectorate of the Western regions in 60 BC. So it went from being a decisive war that we would see in most modern history and a lot of ancient battles as well to a more drawn out, more of a, a policing war. They're not there with full armies. They're not there with the intent of unconditional surrender from a state. The Han are just cleaning up what's left of the Xiongnu. And by the time in 60 BC, they had full control of the protectorate of the Western region's military defense and foreign affairs. But everything we've talked about so far in this show has the Han looking west and looking north. And this makes a lot of sense. Their biggest enemy right there in the north. Remember, the whole point of Emperor Wu's thing was because he felt that the agreement between the Xiongnu and the Han was pathetic. It was cowardice almost, because you had a civilization that agreed to this peace treaty because the original emperor, and no fault to him, agrees in a peace. Remember, he has the quote where it's, the leaders of two nations should not deal in each other's business. Remember, he was saying this when he was surrounded, by the way. He wasn't saying this from a position of power. He was trying to get muster as much power as he could from the situation, gets this deal, and as we know from episode one, what ends up happening is the Xiongnu pretty much do not obey a single part of this. They raid, they kill, they massacre, they steal, they impede on Han lands, and Emperor Wu thinks this as an embarrassment. And rightfully so, what leader wouldn't look at a treaty where you are getting clearly the short end of the stick and decides to try to actually enforce it? So there's no wonder why the Han didn't just immediately look to go north and west, because that's where their enemy was. That's where the conflict was. But when the Xiongnu are cleaned up, they begin to turn their eyes in the opposite direction. The Han begin to expand southward. The Han turn their eyes and their military south to areas, you know, as far south as Hong Kong, well, modern day Hong Kong, and even got to North Vietnam. Again, remember, Hong Kong and North Vietnam are not the states that they are now. This is just a couple of my listeners complained that it's very hard to understand where these ancient Chinese cities are. And I understand that. And especially because a lot of these ancient Chinese cities, when I compare them to modern day Chinese cities, a lot of my listeners, which are pretty much all American, don't know where any of those things are anyway. So the Han begin pushing as far south as Hong Kong. They begin pushing into the north areas of modern day Vietnam. And they also begin to do something interesting. Remember how I talked about how they were a major cavalry force? This is a land army. There's no ocean in the Gobi Desert. It is an ocean of sand. It is an ocean of land. It is an inhospitable region. But in 111 BC, they embark on a naval conquest. The Han are able to actually use this technology, use these trade routes, use the money coming in from these victories, use the money coming in from these new trade routes, and build themselves a navy, and end up conquering into what's now modern-day Guangdong, and as I said, into northern Vietnam. 
The region of Yunnan was actually eventually brought into the Han sphere of influence with the conquest of the uh, of the Dian Kingdom in 109 BC. And after that, in the same year, the Han are also moving into the Korean Peninsula. They're going west with their cavalry. They're going south with their navy and infantry. And in the same year, they have another front where they're going into Korea. And this is with the Han conquest of Gojoseon. Now remember, I take Chinese at Duke. I'm able to speak Chinese a good amount. I can pronounce, pronounce the words pretty well. When I start talking about things in Korea and Vietnam, please forgive my pronunciation of the words. But the Han's conquest of Gojoseon, and, the, and they actually end up establishing these colonial areas of Xuanchu Commandery and Lilian Commandery in 108 BC. So the Chinese, within 10 years of embarking on a very expensive, very costly war, they're not just turning their eyes on one other enemy. They're opening multiple fronts in their northeast region, into Korea, and into the south, which is deceptively far away from the Han Dynasty. You think about China today, of course, North Vietnam, it borders China, it makes sense. Back then, it wasn't. The Han are in central China, well, modern day, east central, but China back then was more to the east. So the Han Dynasty were in the central region of this, of this area, and they had to go pretty far to get to these areas. Yunnan and the Dian Kingdom, these areas involved a lot of effort. These were expensive. These were costly wars. And at the same time, they're also going to Korea. They tasted that blood. They tasted the feeling of conquest. And now they're fully changing their mindset. The Qing Dynasty put all their effort into unifying China. Maybe they would have been a, a conquering power elsewhere. We don't know. Bi Huang Shidi died. And the Han eventually came out victorious. Now, to put into scale how big this empire is getting, with the capture of the Dian Kingdom and moving into the Korean Peninsula and the full establishment of the Protectorate of the Western Regions. Remember, they had established commanderies in the West with Ho Chu Bing. That allowed for some people to come move in, allowed for some sort of colonial system to sort of take place. When they established this Protectorate of the Western Regions, that fully solidifies that Western region as part of the Han. It's a full part of the state. They take these Vietnamese kingdoms, these southern Chinese kingdoms, and they're pushing into Korea, their landmass begins to compete number-to-number-wise with the Roman Empire's largest size. The largest the Roman Empire ever was is about the same size as the Han Dynasty at their peak. Now, I do got to note that the Roman Empire is different in the sense that there's a giant sea in the middle of it, the Mediterranean, that completely changes the dynamic of how that empire is able to spread. But you include the regions in Britain, it begins to be a little larger. But if you count the fully established regions of the Roman Empire, it's about the same size as the Han. And population-wise, the Chinese were large. And as I talked about, China is a very advanced civilization. And China records their first known nationwide census in the Han Dynasty. All the censuses after that, not the first. The very first census taken in China was a nationwide one taken in 2 AD. And the population of the Han Dynasty was registered of having 57,671,400 individuals. And specifically, 12,366,470 households. This was a society that counted their beans. 
But backing up a couple of years, I know I jumped a whole, uh, I know I jumped ahead there to two AD, but I just want to show you what the Han was able to do after these victories. How they were able to advance and do things that were technologically advanced that took unbelievable levels of bureaucracy and order and structure in an era where this had never been done before. And you have to appreciate that when looking at history. You have to understand that a lot of this stuff had never been done before. Most of the things that we're talking about, this is new. They are coming up with the ways to do censuses. They are coming up with the ways to do these conquests off the top of their head. They're ice cold. They've never done this before. There's no book saying, oh, well, you know what's successful? Doing X, Y, Z. They don't have that. They are finding out what is successful. They are finding X, Y, and Z. But backing up to 89 AD, General Do Xian led a Han expedition against the northern Xiongnu. The army did end up advancing past Jiaolu, Manyi, Guangyang, other areas that they had previously been in in three large columns. Now in the summer of 89, which this, this army was around 40,000 troops, they assembled at the base of the Zhoye Mountain. Near the end of the campaign, they again, they force and they harass the Chanyu all the way to the Altai Mountains. They kill thousands of Xiongnu, I think it's around 13,000 Xiongnu, and capture tons of prisoners from about 81 tribes. They end up sending cavalry ahead of them to deal with them. And this, is, this pretty much ends up marking what the cleanup's going to be like. So they have the 60 AD, they established the Western Protectorate, but before that they were going north and cleaning up what's left of them. And I want to really actually dive back into this. Because I mentioned before, the expansion westward did two things. It linked east and west. But it also indirectly affected a wide range of later events. The Xiongnu are being cleaned up. They're being forced north. And as we know, they end up fracturing... And those that are the most north end up being known as the Northern Xiongnu. I know, a simple name, but these are the Northern Xiongnu tribes that if you're pushed north, the northernest ones are going to be in the most north. And the most north is Siberia, the Northern Gobi Desert. Pretty much, if you had to list the places that are the most inhospitable, Siberia and the Gobi Desert are, are pushing the top of that list. You put the Sahara Desert up there, or the very you know densest part of the Amazon rainforest. Those areas are the places you probably don't want to be. If you're a nomadic peoples and you rely on arable land, grazable land to feed your cattle, being in the northern Gobi Desert and being in Siberia is about the worst place you can be. So we know that there was a link between east and west now with these regions, but also pushing the Xiongnu north, you have to remember the alleged ethnic and cultural connection between the Xiongnu and, again, more specifically, the northern Xiongnu tribes and the later Huns. And as these tribes got pushed farther and farther north to avoid getting destroyed by the Han, they were pushed, as I said, into more bitter climates. And they ended up, you know, the rational person would have no other choice but to move. These are nomadic tribes, remember. They don't have an established state. They're not trying to be centered around one city. They culturally and technologically, they are prepared and willing to move. And that's exactly what they did. Now, if this ethnic connection between the Huns is to be believed, and there is, I said in the first episode, it's not really proven, looking back, the entire Xiongnu is what I was really talking about. No, there's not a real connection. But specifically, a couple of these tribes, there is a real connection that is, be, that is believed to be between the Xiongnu and the later Huns. So essentially, these great warriors in the north are now being pushed west and would set up in the w farther west, which their later generations would end up changing the world forever. This is almost the continuous butterfly effect that the Han has. Now, obviously, I'm not putting the Huns' atrocities and their actions and their wars and, and what they did on the Han in any way. They had no part in this. They didn't create the, the Huns. They didn't come up, you know, a couple years after as a direct result. But this just goes to show how far the Han's direct and indirect spheres of influences really were. 
The Huns ravaged Europe. They forever changed the Roman Empire. They threatened the Eastern Roman Empire in the cities like Constantinople. That just goes to show you the sphere of the Hun. So the Xiongnu wiped out, and the Han immediately turning their eyes southward. Now to pay for these military campaigns and colonial expansion, I talked about how they had to raise these taxes just for the Han-Xiongnu War, which were really expensive, put a huge burden on the peasant class, but Emperor Wu nationalized several private industries to pay for it. What he ended up doing is he ended up creating this weird private system. We like to think of China as a very state-run system. Now, this sort of begins the long road towards a fully state-run system. They'd always been doing it. The Shang Dynasty had used state works and state power to divert rivers. The Zhou had used state powers in the wars. The Qing obviously used state powers in just about everything. But the Han were a little different. The Han ended up being a little more cosmopolitan. They were a lot more structured. They were really a world-class empire in the sense of that they allowed for a lot of private industry. Now, he created a central government that actually allowed private industry to monopolize. And this was ended up being administered by largely a lot of former merchants, a lot of former tradesmen, people that were adept in the field. These weren't bureaucrats who were put in charge, like the Soviet Union, where you have a minister of coal who, who realistically had nothing to do with coal, other than the fact that maybe a grandpa or two over there in the past might have run a mine. Now, the monopolies that they had included a wide range of different things. It had salt, iron, weapon productions, leather, even upwards to liquor production were state-mandated monopolies. They even had their, their bronze coinage were made into a government-made monopoly. The liquor monopoly didn't last as long. I mean, long in the sense of our present understanding, but realistically, in the grand scheme of history, the liquor monopoly was really only an example to show how deep the Han Dynasty was willing to go to establish control and to organize its finances. The monopoly only lasted about 17 years about 98 BC to 81 BC. And the salt and iron monopolies were eventually abolished later in the Eastern Han. But the issue that I mentioned about the bronze coin production, this became a monopoly throughout the rest of the Han dynasty. These monopolies were eventually replaced and redone with when a political faction, which were known as the reformists in the Han. Remember, we'd only been talking about a lot of generals. We're talking about a lot of war. But the state had to also organize itself to wage these wars. You know, they wanted to go finish the Hanshong New War. Expensive. They went into Korea. They went into Vietnam, southern China. They had political factions, just as Rome did. Just all these other societies where all we do is talk about the mix between the political intrigue of Cato, the Senate, the consuls, with also the military in the daily lives of the citizens. And the government monopolies were a key issue for a group called the reformists. These political entities, known as the reformists, gained greater and greater influence in the court. The reformists opposed the other faction called the modernists, which had dominated the politics of Emperor Wu's reign. And during the subsequent regency of Huo Guang, which was, he died about 68 BC, the modernists argued for an aggressive and expansionary foreign policy. As you can see, they clearly did have a lot of power. They were the ones pushing a lot of these wars. But they also argued for how to fund these wars. And they wanted to support all these wars with money generated from a very strong central government that intervened itself inside the private economy. That was their way to fund the wars. The, Hong, the Hanshong New War was more of an outlier. Okay, this is a problem. How do we do it? The modernists got up and said, okay, you know what? We want to keep waging war. It's really beneficial to society, but we're going to do it with a lot of intervention into our private economy. 
The reformists, on the other hand, overturned a lot of these policies. Now, the Chinese court at this time began favoring a more non-expansionary approach to their foreign policy and being a lot more cautious. The Han were just going into wars, going into Korea, going into southern China. And they ended up creating a very frugal reform. And they ended up lowering taxes that were imposed on private individuals and private businesses. Because what they realized is that the registered population of the Han Empire began to drop a lot after famine and excessive taxes. A couple bad seasons came in around this time. You had lack of food, but you're also trying to fund giant military operations. So you have excessive taxing mixed with famine. It does not mix well for the people of the country. And this gets us to where the Han begins to show a little bit of its fracturing. So the Han Dynasty was doing all these expansions. They are trading with the West, trading with all versions of the East. And then they get to about 71 BC into about the turn of the millennia, right into the common era. And this is where things begin to sort of not crack, but this is where reality begins to strike in. They're not this perfect empire where they have everything figured out. They end up seeing the cracks of what a large empire always has to face. And this gets into Wang Mang and his reign, which eventually led to a civil war. So he ends up taking power. This Wang Mang character ends up coming in. His aunt was the Grand Empress. She was the Empress Dowager. And she was the very first Grand, Grand Empress during the reign of all these emperors and Emperor Yuan, Chang, and I. But a succession of male relatives held the title for this regent, according to the Book of Han. But following the death of the very last reign of, the, of, the, of that era, Emperor Ai, when he died, Wang Zhenjun, this empress, her nephew Wang Mang was appointed to the regent as marshal of the state, according to the Book of Han, on the 16th of August under Emperor Ping. But Ping dies, and his successor in 6 AD is Ru Ying. And he was the chosen heir, and Wang Mang would have probably been appointed again to a higher position to serve as an acting emperor because this child was too young. Ru Ying was the biological heir to the throne. And this is the same thing that seems to plague most empires. To keep order, you have to make a very clear system on how to hand over power, and oftentimes it falls into a very hereditary line. But this is where an issue occurs, because Ru Ying, the biological heir, is too young to rule an empire. He's probably six years old, completely unable to rule an empire, and they know this, and so Wang Mang, this character, is put in power as a placeholder, but he doesn't give up power. And this is where all hell is going to break loose for the Han Dynasty. On the 10th of January of that same year, he declares that, that the divine mandate of heaven, which is a very large, closest thing to a religious system that the Chinese have, is, is the belief of the mandate of heaven. And it called, in his eyes, for the end of the Han Dynasty. So in 9 AD, you have this placeholder emperor saying, you know what? The mandate of heaven, which... As the emperor, he's the divine connection before this, that the Han dynasty must end. And he establishes his own dynasty, the Xin dynasty. And the Xin dynasty is widely disregarded as being a legitimate dynasty. The Han dynasty's timeline does not, does completely omits this, this hiccup. So from 980 to 23 AD, you have this rogue emperor commanding his own dynasty known as the Xing dynasty. And he tries to do a lot of things. And a lot of the things he tries to do aren't that bad. 
Wang Mong wanted to outlaw slavery. He wanted to nationalize land. He wanted to be a more commune system where a lot of things were more equal. He wanted to introduce new currencies, and he wanted to change the value of those coins. And, of, and although a lot of these things, again, probably made a lot of the court people really upset and a lot of the higher classes really upset, his regime ended up meeting its downfall not from war. Wang Mang's regime meets its ultimate end with the massive floods of 3 AD and 11 AD. So when they move these rivers of the Yellow River and they have a lot of the sediment that's there, there's eventually a silt buildup. And this happens a lot. This happened in modern day China too. And it ended up raising the water levels of the Yellow River so high that it completely overwhelmed the flood control works. Yes, the Romans had aqueducts. Very impressive. Arguably one of the most impressive things of civil engineering that we had up until very recently. But the Han were building locks. The Han were building dams. The Han were building flood control systems into these very large rivers. The Yellow River is absolutely ginormous. And the Yellow River ends up splitting, and one of them north and the other south in the Shandong Peninsula. And what ends up happening is that they dam up the river of the southern branch a couple decades later, but the flood had done its damage. It dislodged so many people. All the arable farmland destroyed. The peasants that lived there, they were, they were completely ripped out of their homes. Now what happens? When there's a large natural disaster, sort of a thing in human nature that still happens today. When there is a natural disaster that disrupts the natural system, debauchery ends up taking place. Banditry and rebel groups end up taking control of these regions as farmers are ripped out of their homes. There's political turmoil, economic turmoil, and one of these groups is known as the Red Eyebrows. And they join these groups in order just to survive. Poverty creates crime. And Wang Meng's armies were not able to stop these rebellions. And in fact, these mobs and these, these rebellions and these bandits got so big and so powerful that eventually a mob actually ended up forcing their way into a palace where Wang Meng was staying and killed him. Eventually, the Gengshir Emperor, a descendant of a long-dead emperor of the Han Dynasty, attempts to restore what's left of the Han, and he does it relatively... He does a relatively good job at what he sets out to do. They occupy the city of Chang'ang, establish it as its capital. And these rebels, though, begin acting in the way that the later Praetorian Guard ended up acting. If they didn't like the emperor, they just deposed him and put a new one in. So these red eyebrows, the red eyebrow rebels, take this new emperor, the Gengshir Emperor. He's trying to reestablish the Han. He resets the capital, doing a pretty good job. And the red eyebrow rebels kill him. And what do they do? Just like the Praetorian Guard ended up doing, and they replace him with a puppet. And this puppet for the Han is Liu Penzi. But eventually Liu Penzi is overthrown. There's a little battle called the Battle of Kunyang in 23 AD. Now after this Gung Wu character had established himself at the Battle of Kunyang, he was urged to succeed Gung Shi as emperor, knock out the puppet leader. And reluctantly he says yes, but under his rule the Han Empire and the Han Dynasty that we had known before Wang Meng was finally restored and the Han begins to get back to business as usual. And what he does is a lot of infighting. He couldn't do the long-range military campaigns of the previous generals and the previous emperors because he had still had problems at home. He and his officers, his officers were Deng Yu and Feng Yi, and they ended up surrounding the Red Eyebrows, forcing them to surrender, and executed their leaders for treason. And from 26 to 36 AD, he waged a small war against other warlords, who had actually ended up claiming the title of emperor, a little Chinese version of Game of Thrones. But this one is real. 
But obviously the Han are too powerful. Now that they're organized, they're unified, the military's under clear command, these warlords were no match. They were easily defeated, and China was reunited. So the period that we had been talking about from the very establishment of the Han Dynasty to when Wang Mang's civil war and all hell breaks loose, the Red Eyebrows, that period is known as the Western Han. That capital city for that part of the Han Dynasty was Chang'an, which is in modern-day Xi'an. But now, after Han has been re-established, they've re-established their order over the empire, they've re-established themselves as the Han, everything's getting back to usual, they move the capital to Luoyang, which is a city in the very eastern edge of the Ordus Loop, and I've actually been to this city. It sits on the Yellow River, great spot for a dynasty to have their capital. And this period, however, from 25 to 220 AD, is known as the Eastern Han. Now, the Eastern Han had a completely different set of challenges than the Western Han. It's still, don't think about it as the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. These are just different period names for the same dynasty. But while Wang Mang and his rule and, his, and all the subsequent banditry and rebellion that happened after, China ends up losing control of a lot of its land. Remember the Terran Basin that I'd mentioned earlier? That the Han had ripped away from the Xiongnu? Well, guess what? The Northern Xiongnu come back and take it. And this was used as a base to invade the Hushi Corridor in Gansu. So the Han had established themselves in the Western Protectorate. They had beaten the Xiongnu, pushed them out. And the moment they turn their back and go to infighting, same as the Qing state, they lose their very far frontier states. And this does change how the Eastern Han is able to operate. Now, there are several fights with nomadic travelers, but the biggest thing for the Eastern Han is the introduction of Buddhism. Buddhism moves into the Eastern Han from Buddhist monks who move in from Parthia and India. So what makes this really interesting is that when Buddhism comes to China, it ends up offering a lot. Buddhism is sort of the first real stereotypical religion to set its foot in China and have a grip on it. And a lot of things about Buddhism had to be altered from the way it was in India to what is in China. When I talked about China, I talked about how they'd only had philosophies as really their main base of sort of any system of a religious order. But Buddhism changed itself to meld itself better with Chinese culture. China had a lot of different religions. They had Taoism, which is very spiritual. They had a lot of shamanistic religions. And they also had Confucianism. And because it wasn't a religion, a lot of the aspects of Confucianism that had been pushed through by other Han leaders and other Han emperors made one aspect really large, and that was filial piety. You know, filial piety is the idea that you obey your parents, and then your parents obey the emperor. There's a very clear hierarchy. Everyone obeys their superior, and everyone moves along happily. The idea that if your grandparents or your parents get old, you take care of them. So that idea is pushed forward. Buddhism doesn't really have that. Buddhism is about enlightenment. But when it makes its way to China, it changes itself. Buddhist monks in the area begin to say, well, if you want to be a good Buddhist, you need to have filial piety. Now, this was something that was not part of the original Buddhist texts. But this makes it easier to take in for the Confucius citizens of the Han Dynasty. Now, Buddhism also had the qualities needed to mesh in with some of the more shamanistic religions of the people. Now, Buddhism had a lot of incense, it had a lot of prayer, it had a lot of belief in this sort of metaphysical, would be the right word to say, that the shamanistic people, mainly in the country, tended to feel really strongly about. And lastly, Buddhism had the spiritual connection with Taoism, 
which made it easy for this last group of Han citizens to take in. This growth of Buddhism and the spread of Buddhist monks from different parts of Asia connected China even closer, however, to other civilizations, and again, most notably, the Parthian Empire. The Han were soon much closer to this empire, not just geographically as a, as a result of the fact that the re-established Han quickly got back their lost lands, but also politically and economically as a result of this spread of religion. Once disconnected peoples were now, like a web, slowly being tied together. Emissaries were sent, and this gets the Han Dynasty's fears, and this gets the Han Dynasty's sphere of influence finally within earshot of Rome. Now, there was an emissary sent, and the, the emissary, the lead of the emissary's name was Gan Ying, and he was sent to go to Da Qing, which translates directly to big gold. But most under but the way it should be translated for us is Da Qing is Rome. And this is done in 97 AD. A Roman embassy of Emperor Marcus Aurelius is recorded in the Book of Han as having to have said that he reached the Emperor Juan of Han in AD 166, but modern historians have asserted that this probably was not true, and most likely this is actually just a group of Roman merchants, but nonetheless, Roman merchants, maybe a Roman embassy from Marcus Aurelius, make contact with the Han Chinese. While this seems to be some sort of high watermark for the Han Chinese, the end of the Han is slowly approaching, as several rebellions break out a couple decades later in 184 AD, with the largest being the Yellow Turban or Yellow Scarf Rebellion. A major cause of the rebellion was an agrarian crisis. There was a famine. The same issues that plagued Wang Chang and other Han leaders is that famine and floods were very tumultuous for them to solve. You had probably almost around a million or so peasants who had their lands completely destroyed. The ability to make food severely hindered. And on top of that, there was a political crisis where landowners had become a long-standing problem. Sort of the social economic system of that day had was built on a very rickety structure, and it was beginning to fall with this issue. But the economic system itself was not just the only problem. There was also a governmental issue. Now, we had talked about the long-standing problem of landowners and the way the landowner and land-owning economic structure was built. But the biggest issue was actually in the government. Now... There's been a court of eunuchs, and in particular, these gained a considerable amount of influence over the emperor and in the court. And it's widely believed that these use their power to enrich, them, enrich themselves with no sort of regard for the people. Now, ten of the most powerful eunuchs formed a group, and this group is called the Ten Attendants, and they worked for Emperor Ling. And he referred to them as his foster father. The government is widely regarded, you know, it has the ear of the emperor, and it uses its powers to be corrupt. And this crisis renders them completely incapable of dealing with the famines and floods. And this is viewed as an indication that an emperor had lost his mandate of heaven. That if he was truly in line with heaven, truly doing what he needed to do, and his court was working effectively, this wouldn't have happened. But this corruption makes the people believe he's lost the mandate of heaven. And these people in the yellow turban rebellion are Taoists, and it results in direct armed conflict. Eventually, the military is sent in to squash this rebellion right in its tracks. Now, while they were successful in this, something new and much worse happened. The generals did not disband their armies after. 
and instead amass them outside the capital and begin to use them as leverage. Remember in episode one I talked about what made what key aspect of the Han military made it so great in my eyes, and that was that an emperor had to appoint the general if the time was if the time was right. If there was a war, okay, I'm gonna pick XYZ to be my general, and here's why. But now the emperors had a problem. The generals were not disbanding their armies, the same problem that happened with Julius Caesar. And these Han generals began to leverage their military force against the state that it was originally sworn to protect and against the orders of the emperor that had put them in that place of power in the first place. And this sets off a very dangerous trend of reappointments of generals, promotions and demotions in the court, assassination, assassination attempts, and constant pressure to renew who was emperor. Because now people had the ability to make a lot of these things happen. And that brings us to Cao Cao one of the last great characters of this dynasty, and one of the last characters we'll be talking about in this story. Cao Cao was a warlord, but he slowly began to amass power through a long-running string of victories against other warlords and Han leaders. Now, Cao Cao will not actually emperor himself, per se. He began fighting with other warlords and leaders to get as much power as he could for himself. And by 210 AD, he controlled virtually all of northern China. This warlord had taken full control. Honestly, you could view him as one of the emperors that took over from Wang Chang. The Han Dynasty is not actually dead yet. There was an issue, there was a lot of infighting, but it can still be put together, and it happened already once, it can happen again. But Cao Cao turns his forces south after capturing the north, but in 210, he ventures for southern China. And by 211, his forces in southern Jin are eventually cut off and beaten. Ten years later, in 220, Cao Cao died. A lot of people died in this story. But he died before fully unifying China, and he was a cult of personality character. He was someone that he couldn't just pick up where he left off with maybe a son or another general. And because he had not unified China, the three states period began. And this is where the Han ends. The Han Dynasty, looking back, and in the end of this podcast show, should be appreciated for what it did economically, militarily, and socially. It proved itself able financially to support a giant war against the Xiongnu, but it also proved itself to be full of military geniuses. Cult of personality figures, great tactics, and unbelievable political intrigue. The Han Dynasty allowed China for the very first time to make contact truly with the other great powers of the world and forever changed their tastes from being a small warring states area to being one that trades fine goods with the other great power of the day and in doing so opening up the Silk Road and allowing it to become what it would later be in later Han dynasties that would benefit tremendously from this trade route while not necessarily trading with Rome anymore in the later dynasties trading with Arabia and soon Western Europe. In the end, I just want to appreciate the Han Dynasty for what it is. It was the size of Rome, ended up dealing with Rome, had a lot of the same problems as Rome, but doesn't get a lot of the historical recognition, and that's what I wanted to do in this podcast. So I hope you enjoyed this relatively short. I mean, if I went into every single detail, this podcast would be, well, be just about 400 years long. But with that, I close my very first series. 
Here's a sneak peek into my next series, Patriots Rising. I'll look into the American Revolution from the periods before, during, and after, and how the now largest power on the entire planet, could even say an empire, was founded. Check back in next time for episode one of Patriots Rising, and have a good day.